0: Hello. Hello everybody and, and welcome, welcome back, back to, to another, another episode, episode of This, this Is absurd. absurd. My name is Tar Bruce. And my name is Arturo Lamb. Hey, everybody, and welcome back to another guest episode. This one, though, is very special because usually with guests, we either me or Arturo know them a little bit, but with uh, today's guest, This is Jordan, the first time we're ever doing this. <laughs> first so. time where we don't really know the guest that much. I literally met him 10 minutes ago, so this should be a very interesting episode. Uh, go ahead and introduce yourself, Jordan. Well, it's nice to meet you both as well.
1: <laughs> Hello. Yeah, I'm, I'm Jordan Barton. Uh, I'm a sophomore at uh, Harvard, Uh, I study um, government, Uh, I'm a writer at the Harvard Undergraduate Law Review, Uh, I'm a columnist writer uh, at the Harvard Political Review, do various uh, political organizing from our divest movement to the DSA, and uh, I'm really happy to be here with you guys today, 10 minutes to the act. Yeah.
0: (laughs) (laughs) No, honestly, this is probably like one of the better ways to learn somebody over just like a a, a long-form podcast conversation. Um, but yeah Jordan so you you mentioned all of these things that you do at Harvard but how did you end up choosing to go to Harvard I mean you you were telling us where does your journey start yeah where's your journey (laughs) because you said you're from a 10,000 population town in Odessa or close to Odessa Texas which is essentially nowhere right (laughs) so so how did you end up uh, you know in the northeast
1: yeah so um, I guess it's an interesting uh, life story so I grew up in andrews texas it was where i was born i grew up with a single dad uh a bit of a tumultuous starting life i guess i'll say uh not to be a downer or anything but yeah really uh i started off uh with like you know mom and dad but my mom had problems throughout life she eventually kind of fell out of my life and i've been living with my dad and my grandparents really ever since then uh We grew up like pretty poor, like you know, like I said. Andrews really is like a boom bust oil city, like stack it up, stack it down, you know, like move on. And so, uh, we were struggling out there. And I got really uh, involved in in academics just in high school. I really liked it. I really found like like I said politics quite interesting, and I just started really studying. And then I found out I had a knack for it. And I applied to be in QuestBridge, if you've ever heard of QuestBridge. Uh, Is it a scholarship program? It is. It's a scholarship program primarily for first-generation, low-income students, and that's what I was. I would be the first in my family to go to college. Uh, You know, like, uh, my my senior year, I was evicted from my house, so I was technically homeless at the time I was applying to to QuestBridge. And so um, I became a QuestBridge scholar, and I actually did the national college match. So I matched to a different school first. I was going to go to Princeton. Uh, So I matched to Princeton... But then I decided to apply to a few different schools, just like on a whim. I actually applied to Harvard like the day before the application, just on a whim. I was like, it's common app. I can just throw an essay in there and like, we'll see if I can just get in. You know, I'll probably go to Princeton, but I applied and I got into two other schools. So I got into Stanford and, and Harvard. And I don't know. I went through a little identity crisis. I studied it. I had a good friend uh, that was I had already known that was going to Harvard, and I was just like, um, I guess I'll guess I'll do that. Yeah. So I ended up at Harvard that way.
0: Um, was this good friend also from uh, Andrews? Was it just <laughs> an anomaly in terms of like this year, where two if people from Andrews, Texas, went to Harvard? No. Or? Uh,
1: funnily enough, he's from Germany.
0: Oh, okay. wow. <laughs> wow.
1: Yeah, but uh, no. I think we had had a student go to like Stanford a few years before me to play football, and like before that, I think we had a student go in the '80s or something. But no, I was like the big deal and the reason like it was like a newsworthy or whatnot is like I was the first one to go for a long time if that meant anything really I mean I think it's really luck
0: <laughs> no I mean I think I think it I think it does mean something it sounds like uh like you like you said you had a tough starting line and you were able to still make the best of it right um but you said that you you developed an interest in politics in like high school what, what was exactly like the the impetus for that um
1: you know, I, I wish I could say it was something just like I was around it and I was seeing it and I was getting involved in volunteering, but it was really the opposite. I felt like, like I said, my childhood was quite reclusive. I was kind of the homo sacer in a weird way, like the one that was kind of excluded from the, from the society around me. And so as I was coming up and learning, I read, like like I said, lots of theory and I did policy debate. Uh, and policy debate is a great introduction to getting involved in civic life and, and uh Political discussions in general. So that's really what I was doing as I was getting really involved with debate and meeting new people, and I was reading theory. Like I started reading like anything from like Locke to Marx, whatever. You know, just doing whatever like silly childhood, like high school things. And I guess that was what really pulled me towards it. Um, <coughs> but to really tell you, um, I think a lot of it was the discussion around me, like from my friends that were also really involved in politics. I was in theater and. Theater kids, I guess, are uniquely political these days. <laughs> uh, and, and if not that, um, when I was a senior, uh, I got to go to Washington, D.C. because I w- got nominated through QuestBridge to be a, in this thing called the Presidential Scholars Program. So every year, the Department of Education picks like 150 kids to come and get an award and like meet the president, blah, 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 blah. And I did that, and so I was the male student. So they pick a male student and a female student in academics for every state. And so I was the male student from Texas, and I went and got that. And going, being in, uh, in D.C. and having that kind of really weird feeling around you, like that you were kind of important all of a sudden and that you were someone of, uh, of notice, like, I don't know. And then actually meeting the president, <laughs> which How was, was interesting. I was meeting yeah, – I always Donald have an anecdote Trump, yeah. I tell about meeting Donald Trump, which was he shook my hand very briefly – and then, like, kind of went off. He was, like, 40 minutes late, too, and he came in, like, sweating, dude, like, covered in sweat. And he, he, um, he looked at all of us, and he said, let me tell you something. June 2019 is going to be the biggest stock closing on record. NASDAQ is going to have the highest composite it's ever had. <laughs> and I said, and he said, and if not, I will personally give you all a signed letter of apology. Well, uh, June 2019 was the biggest close on record. Um, if that means anything So now. no letter. <laughs> yeah. Uh, not so high anymore. Some things changed in the, in the composite. Just time. a little bit. <laughs> Just. Just a bit. But, yeah, really, like, going to Washington and seeing these people and meeting people, being a part of that, and uh, I guess all of that Fortis experience prior to that and debate and stuff kind of just pulled me in the direction of politics and going to harvard is a huge government school like everybody studies politics there i bet economics. so
2: like what is the i am sure it has a big political culture but what exactly is the culture of stepping first off how was it like did you feel like a, a small fish going into a really large pond in
1: harvard Uh, definitely I mean I think everyone feels like that to a certain extent even the people that were basically born and bred to go there which there are many of you know Um, but you do feel like a small fish just because you're jumping for one you're jumping into a world that's completely unknown to you like I lived in Andrews if not Andrews Odessa or I lived in Dallas like when I was a kid for a little bit but I basically never been outside of Texas and so moving so quickly into a totally different culture, basically, because New England's its own beast in itself. And then going to Cambridge was a really affluent Boston suburb. It's like very rich. Stepping onto Harvard Yard, which is this mass historical place. I mean, it's hundreds of years older than even my city is in existence. You know, and so uh, you step immediately into like a bunch of new history and culture. It's culture shock. I mean, point and simple. But um, and then you and then you go into the actual discussion of what Harvard is, and that's, like, an, an extra alienating element <laughs> to the whole mix. But, uh, yeah, I get, and, the, and, like, the second thing you, that you were talking about, um, I don't know. Like, uh, Harvard is uh, a really involved place. Uh, it's a huge volunteer community. Everybody at Harvard volunteers. Uh, all freshmen, the first few days we get there, we have our day of service, And, like, they usually do pre-orientation programs. One of the biggest things about being a Harvard student, uh, at the very least, you're pressured into being, is, like, very involved in in service and volunteering. Yeah.
2: Wow. So that's just crazy because I'm sure, I feel that some people in in the, like, political culture of Harvard, are there definitely people there that think I'm going to be president?
0: (laughs) Have you met those people? Um, Hmm. I, I, are you one of those people? <laughs> are you one of those people? Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, I think
1: it, it, I think it exists, but it's almost a subtlety, really. Like, uh, I think a lot of people will say, uh, like, the calling card, or, like, you know, like, they'll, they'll mask it with something like, well, I'm, in, I'm interested in a career in public service. You know, like, they won't tell uh, you out. Um, but I think there's kids that probably are. Maybe I haven't met them, but there are certain kids that I would see I can't, I I won't say any specific names, but I remember like there's kids in my class that would, that are like the networking types. They're always talking to people that have the political smiles. And I'm like, I'll remember their names. I'll try to remember who
0: these people are the ones that run for student government and give you the big white political smile. That's the ones. Yeah. It's like 10, 15 years down the road. Yeah, 15 years from now. You see that name on like the news, you're like, oh. I remember that. I
1: make sure I follow them on Instagram and Twitter and whatnot. So, like, it's like, oh, look, I know them. (laughs) Maybe I can get a favor in sometime in the future. What about,
2: uh, so, do you think that in terms of service and being heavily involved with, like, volunteering and stuff, is there a part where it comes out of selfishness? Maybe not to you, but for just the scene at Harvard.
1: Oh, yeah. A huge thing about Harvard, because... I think Harvard really uh, creates big social spaces around like politics and economics, and then the other one is like finance, econ. econ uh, people that want to people that want to go into business and stuff, especially. Um, and so, there is a huge scene of like resume chasing. I think that's especially a real problem at Harvard. As it is probably at really any large, like, world-class research university, even, like, UT. like Definitely,
2: yeah. Like, I, I've <laughs> I've met those people before.
1: There's people that definitely get involved in things specifically because it looks good or it's good for your resume. Uh, and a good way of delineating that, I noticed, and this is not always true, because there are some people that are excellent volunteers at, like, the national level. But really working where it's important is like working in the community, like working at the Cambridge level. And now like I'm trying to work at the Austin level, working at the really direct community level, getting to know the people you're working with. Uh, The people that would clout chase were the ones that were applying like for the prestigious national fellowships like all the time. Like those are the people that you could tell have their aspirations, I think, before they have their idea of service before them.
0: Like the service is just a stepping stone, maybe.
1: Yeah, like or like, you know, like the more internships that you pick up in DC, the more that you'll be able to like pull an awesome job in DC or, you know, in finance, you can get pulled at McKinsey or or Goldman Sachs, whatever, right after graduation. That's, that is the goal of many Harvard students. I mean, I'm not, I'm not mad about it. You know, like chase your bag, do what you got to do. But like, uh, when it comes to service, I think it's important, like that you, especially if you're, you'll, I, I think it's, I think it's, you have to be genuine, you know? And like, one thing about being genuine is seeing how involved these pe- these potential volunteers are with their communities, like, the ones that they are actually bred up and, and born into. Um, like, even when I went back to Andrews, I was involved in in trying to get Andrews organized, which is a unique thing in itself. Like, my brother, I have, a, I have a little brother who's 17, and he's also really interested in politics, had a very similar life story to me, and, like, he founded a March for Our Lives chapter in Andrews uh, because of Uh, last year we had the Odessa shooting so there was a mass shooting in Odessa so that inspired a lot of people to action and um like through his organization and like me and journey when we went back we like organized a big like peaceful demonstration for the movement for black lives for George Floyd and like that was like one of the most empowering kind of organizing moments I think I've ever had like getting to see people you grew up around your community you know engaged in doing things um but I really just say that in, in in the precipice of you know like those are the meaningful organizing experiences, the ones with your communities and and not even just service, but really anything like it's about doing it with the college community or with the local community. But I think lots of people do clout chase for sure. Like they they go straight up, they try to j- jump on corporate, jump on the national organizing scene, uh, which is generally
0: a scene of, uh, sign of aspiration, <laughs> first yeah. and foremost. In terms of, like, service that you've done at Harvard, then, what has been some organizations or service projects you've done or maybe your favorite ones? Yeah,
1: so it's not unsurprising that Harvard being the the school it is is, is full of problems, you know, like every... Uh, like, I know UT has its own share of <laughs> of problems, too. Um, so, like, a lot of the big problems we face revolve around how Harvard uses its money, you know, because Harvard has more money than any school in the world very large endowment a fund. a very yeah. large endowment fund forty billion dollars uh, the UT is pretty close behind but like UT is like the whole UT system mm-hmm. right we got the
0: UTds UT El Paso yeah. and I think um, it's even like merged
2: with aM if I'm if I'm yeah. not mistaken like
1: y'all, and it's a state and it's a state program well Harvard is like uh, a lot of professors say it in a, in a really interesting way uh, my preceptor uh, for my freshman writing course uh told me it this way and he said harvard really is like a large capital hedge fund with an education wing and i found that a really interesting (laughs) way of describing harvard i mean they have so many so much money so many assets like they have to manage them but in, in the sense of organizing i think that's where the most important work that i've tried to do is like i'm all about economic and housing justice and i'm about endowment justice uh So one of the big things I got involved in at Harvard was like the fossil fuel divestment movement, uh, which was telling us to disclose their, Harvard, the Harvard corporation to disclose its investments in fossil fuels and natural gas uh, and reinvest into green alternatives because like, you know, those kind of investments in the Exxon are like, and in my political opinion, you know, are destroying the planet, exacerbating climate crisis. And so I got really involved there. I was a press representative and action committee representative um, we staged an occupation of University Hall. It's like a classic building at Harvard that in the 60s anti-war Vietnam protesters stormed. And even later before then there's been multiple historic like movements around it. Um, and that was something I got to help organize. I was a press representative for. I got to give a speech there uh, at that occupation and uh, like I read a poem and so that was one of I, I and I, I say that really it's just kind of anecdotal stuff I guess I really love organizing with the divest people they have like amazing organizers and great people um, but divest is definitely being one of the ones I've been most involved with and really passionate about um, especially coming from a place like West Texas you know which is an oil like I said an oil field town where I've seen like the, we, we we've seen like the results of fracking and you know, like a really like a ravenous uh, fossil fuel industry, like firsthand. So I guess that's what really pulled me towards acting that way. Um, but outside of that, like I said, I've written for the Harvard Political Review, writing on politics, uh, United States culture. Uh, I've written for the undergraduate law review. I wrote an article I published in the in the fall edition of my freshman year, fall 2019, about the National Security Agency and things that they were doing that are, like, hella illegal, <laughs> you know? And uh,
0: like, what? like what, for example?
1: Oh, uh, we were talking about... So I wrote a, about the state secret privilege. So basically, uh, in addition to, like, large-scale wiretapping, one thing that the NSA does to protect itself in court is they constantly invoke this thing called the state secrets privilege, where they say that, like, when things are trying to sue for information or when plaintiffs are trying to sue for information, uh, they can invoke that privilege say, oh, this will, like... Damage national security because it releases state secrets on how we do things, which is just basically a cop out for saying we can illegally collect your information, and then when you ask for it in court, we say oh, but for national security can't like let you win that case, or we can't like stop the wiretapping program or whatnot. Uh, so I wrote a an indictive article about a, a case that was uh, circulating in a district court, like Ninth District Court, called E uh, Electronic Frontier Foundation versus um, shit man it slips me at the moment but uh um, good anyway uh, it was just talking about how the court should like re-review that case and like if they do rule positively on that case it can change some kind of weird legal precedent that will allow that state secrets privilege to be way weaker so that, oh, that okay, we, so that they can get sued way easier and like stop collecting americans information unlawfully (laughs) yeah
2: (laughs) what about some uh so like you said you're heavily involved in the divest
1: organization right yeah what what are so is it just called divest it's technically called the fossil fuel fossil fuel divest harvard ffdh but i got involved more specifically with the college climate coalition which is a coalition of divestment movements across the Uh, country um that um we, like, do coalitional work, and, like, it was a, the big thing that we were leading up to was an Earth Day rally this year, uh, and it was virtual, but, of course, it didn't get, it, would, it wasn't quite what we had planned the yeah. whole time, but, no, it, it was, it was wonderful. So, um, it's a national movement. Yeah, it is a huge national movement. Um, I didn't know In fact, it. lots of, uh, lots of schools, including, like, the University of Pennsylvania, and then like, all the way across the sea, and, like, Oxford, Cambridge, and then a litany of schools here in the country have already committed to divesting, uh, to divesting to putting their money that they had in fossil fuels into like their communities. Uh in the wake of uh you know like the Black Lives Matter movement, we've even seen some universities signing that money over towards like restorative justice in black communities or like especially like communities that have been affected by it um or by climate disaster. Um so that's good news. Uh Harvard's not one of those schools. We've been pushing the campaign for at Harvard, I think, has been going since 2012. Uh, And so, you know, eight years running, but I think we get closer and closer every day. And there's some wonderful organizers. Lots of them are graduating, but, yeah, shout out to them. They're wonderful people. Uh, And then outside of that, I combined uh, the really only – the other work I've done uh, is, like, through the DSA and then the organization. And and tell the listeners what the DSA DSA is. Uh, The Democratic Socialists of America, or the Young Democratic Socialists of America. So I've done a lot of work through them, uh, including – Uh, we they did a huge endorsement drive for like Bernie Sanders for president that I got really involved in and then nowadays they're doing more like national chapter founding and working groups and virtually all this jargon meeting that they that they're trying to get involved in doing all kinds of like economic organizing around the pandemic especially Um, and so there's awesome people that work on like three different campaigns at once that are like at Divest and also at DSA and Uh, those are the the movements that I've really got involved in and and, and really been passionate about, I think.
2: So managing the endowment fund, like you said, is a problem that people can see at Harvard. Mm -hmm. What are some other problems? Is there anything related to the culture of it or
1: other things that you're involved? Uh, So another two big movements, I think, that are at Harvard and that are really important are... Uh, the title, like, issues around Title IX, so, like, sexual assault, uh, like, you know, how does Harvard orient this Title IX policy, how are professors held accountable, especially when they're tenured? We've had problems like that. I think UT had a big problem, problem. Yeah. last
0: year. Um, I what, heard something about that, in spring yeah. There was a lot of uh, your protests both on campus and then students coming into the classroom of the uh, uh, guy who committed the sexual misconduct oh yeah um, we've so.
1: had we've had similar problems i think that's a problem honestly like at most american universities which is pretty shameful but um that's a big thing um sorry uh, um, another thing that is getting especially bigger is like the ethnic studies coalition so there's a lot of conjoined movements um that are calling for the establishment of an ethnic studies department at harvard because uh, harvard uh you know, the criticism here being Harvard's curriculum is, like, entirely whitewashed. Uh, it, it, it fits into, like, this perfect, like, Western colonial narrative, and, like, we should decolonize the curriculum and, like, open it up with ethnic studies, which is, like, that's great. Um, what does that mean? So, uh, ethnic studies... Yeah, de- 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 <laughs> yeah, yeah. decolonization <laughs> of like oh, yeah. i
0: understand decolonization in the historical sense right like uh say yeah france pulling out of algeria yeah i'm but, really i'm really I'm, and, I, and
1: frankly i'm using their words at, 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 at like however they'll, oh, they'll okay. use them so, i don't even I, I i'm probably not the most qualified to talk about it but i i think generally just meaning like trying to like take out uh grammars and like things that are associated with western colonialism whether it be things like whitewashed they, what they would have perceived to be like whitewashed versions of history like maybe a great example of that being like how slavery is taught in american schools or like the contributions that slavery is made even to the development of harvard like trying to call attention to that but coalitional movements that that build on that are like the harvard alliance against campus cops which is like a an organization that's growing in popularity at harvard that's calling for like hupd our harvard university police department to like Get off campus and like restore like a community policing model, and then uh, y- y- you know various movements to Harvard Prison Divestment Coalition, which want Harvard. Uh, it's an endowment thing as well, where Harvard invests lots of its money in private prisons and stuff like that, and they want us. They want to pull that money out and put it back
0: towards communities, uh, ad nauseum, really. <laughs> how, how, uh, but there's um, sorry, I, I didn't mean to yeah. cut you off. I just, I just before we ran away from no, yeah. from it, I just wanted to ask you how how do you feel about something like. Uh, you know divesting the Harvard police uh, like getting them off of campus so you personally like what, what is your personal opinion on that my
1: personal opinion is um, I think the campus and the community comes together and works the best when we listen to everybody and so what I what I what I generally mean by that is there there's a lot of people come out especially uh, by like bio POC you know like uh, people of color, especially, that are coming out and saying, campus police do not make us feel safer. They make us feel uh, like we are in danger in right of recent events. The politicization of police has become unavoidable. Uh, HEPD have been found at uh, riots, like quelling them. Their badges have been clearly presented on people that are completely, you know, armed with riot police. So it's obviously like, well, one, I believe out front that, police shouldn't be militarized you know that's something that wasn't happening in the united states even before real policing works when they're community members that are part of the community that can go and talk to people and that can build relationships with them not when they're federal troops that come in with full riot gear and and that escalate as like even ted wheeler mayor of portland said that just just come in and escalate things that create problems um so that's my uh do I believe in removing HUPD from the campus entirely? I do think there, there should be a process or some kind of deliberative dialogue between those groups and HUPD to see where we, they can have tasks taken away from them and given towards other community organizations, especially mental health professionals, people that can deal with domestic violence or drug issues, way better than police can. Um, but in general, I think you still need to have some kind of police presence around, yeah, because Harvard Yard gets looted sometimes like people there's so many tourists on harvard yard like every year like i think it's like over two million people are on the yard and so of course the problem that comes in that is freshmen live on the historic yard all of the historic buildings are first year housing so people like take pictures inside their rooms they break windows they take stuff like so we had to have i mean that happens a lot too like it was a huge problem almost every year beyond that we also like have one or two dorms like they're so old like catch on fire once a year <laughs> so you gotta have some kind of like response you know uh but it's like a militarized police unit uh the best for that probably in my opinion no i i think moving towards a form of like a community policing model at harvard and elsewhere uh is
0: a good idea <laughs> yeah i just wanted to from you know your perspective as, as a first-year student yeah what, how you felt towards the police because um divesting has been something that's been uh, a conversation not only with like you know campus polices, but also like police uh, departments across big cities yeah. too so it's been a really interesting conversation um, especially cuz in Austin i don't know if you um, were in Austin back in the beginning of august but they they the, defunded yeah right? they, de- they defunded i think some what was the budget that they cut it was a couple uh, it was 100 a hundred, like something a hundred million
1: 150 million or something 150
0: 180 million something like that so i i was just curious to to see if that's kind of also been happening in in, uh, the Northeast, not just like on campus, but outside of campus. Yeah,
1: I think it has. And like a big thing that exists in Cambridge and that was uh, one of the kind of, uh, and it's kind of interesting to talk about, but kind of one of the parasitic interests of many of the student body. We have like the PBHA or the Philip Brooks House Association, which coordinates volunteer efforts across the university. And a lot of people get involved in like homelessness prevention and they help homelessness on Harvard Yard, but it it came under some controversy because it's one of uh, uh, one of those things that a lot of people will, like commit five ten hours to and then never do again. You know, like uh, like doing NHS hours or something in high school. Yeah. Like it's it's obviously a bigger problem than that like there's lots of homeless people on Harvard Yard, and the police there have always been a problem. They've uh, Cambridge has been one of the communities that's like installing like anti homeless like installations on grounds and on benches and stuff to like prevent homeless people from sleeping on them and stuff. So it creates this kind of paradox where you're not trying to solve homelessness, you're not expanding your capital or volunteer efforts towards homelessness, yet you're criminalizing homelessness. Um, and so uh, that's been a huge problem at Harvard and that's one that I think is uh, critical to the DSA's mission and also critical to some uh, excellent organizers there that are like working with Cam- Cambridge City Council now to work on like affordable housing projects and stuff. Um, I appreciate those efforts, but <laughs> uh, as, as part of like the broader conversation on like defunding police departments, uh, I, I, I mean I'm staunchly a, a defender of the alternative narrative of, of, our, of the alternative narrative how to say, uh, how to say that thing, which is we're not just taking money away from police departments, right? What we're doing is reinvesting money from police departments that's used to militarize them. Militarized police don't do good for our communities. They don't support us. So what we're doing differently is we're taking that money and we're putting it into education and, and extraneous, like, social services, but we're also, we're also putting that money into things that are important for policing. So, like, expanding it to, like, include mental health uh, officials that can respond, uh, domestic, uh, you know, like, domestic therapists that can respond, whatnot, like, that people that are uh, going to be able to do their mission better, yeah.
0: Yeah, uh, and I... I think those things are are great. I mean, the the biggest thing for me though is just being absolutely transparent about that. Like, I was trying to understand what exactly the money, uh, where the money was going, and where the money was coming from with this recent budget cut for the uh, Austin or APD, and like it was a large amount of money being cut from nine one one services. And I was like, what does that mean exactly? Right? They just said like this amount of money is going away from this, and this amount of money is going from traffic services and and like, I don't exactly know what that means in terms of like, what does that mean for the actual services? How is this going to decrease perhaps the efficiency or um, cause but problems or?
2: Additionally, like, it was uh, the money that they were because some of it was just cut, but yeah. part of that part of that was supposed to be reinvested. It's just right now it's called a reimagination – uh, fun, fun yeah, or yeah, but it, like that, that's, it's not defined at all what the duties in the yeah.
1: reimagining Austin. See, that's not uh, – and, and that would be a classical response by which the city government, like, faces a political pressure, and then they immediately try to correct it without <coughs> – sorry, really sitting down and figuring out what the problem is and how they can correct it. One of the futures to this movement and one of the futures to creating restorative justice is going to be taking a much more vigilant stance towards analysis – being able to sit down with especially like the city council first and foremost should be the first thing to say, let's sit down and let's open a council and let's have town halls and let's like begin a a real examination of where the community stands on policing and how we can accommodate to those concerns. Talk to local leaders, talk to education leaders, talk to leaders in the policing industry and in the police, figure out what they need and figure out how we can balance those needs. Uh, The idea of defunding the police as an abstract like act that has happened upon immediacy, which means, okay, let's take a certain amount of money away from the police. Yay, the money's gone. That's not going to help our communities. What it means is taking money from the police, as in money that is used for certain budgets. Not like your nine one one, you know, not things like that. But p- police have extensive budgets that militarize them. Like I've said, like weapons budgets, budgets that they're receiving even from the federal government that help them subsidize the purchase of like SWAT teams and and help pay off those SWAT teams or, like, SWAT equipment. We need to cut those budgets, demilitarize the police, and with that money, reinvest in the community clearly and comprehensively based on, you know, a democratic and analytical dialogue about what we should do with that money, you know? No, I agree 100%. Yeah, Yeah. and so... uh, But this is one of those talking points that's taken way out of of context by political pundits, and that's just going to be one of the things that keeps happening. Uh, It was the same thing, like, when I would write on... Fossil fuel divestment. I would get hate mail about how, you know, all you know misinformation spewed talking points that don't. are just regurgitating like Facebook information. Like, you know, we're not talking about that. So uh, I think, uh, like the movements, especially that are Harvard based, uh, have a clear conception of this as well. They're very, uh, I guess the way to say it is like comprehensive. They know exactly what their demands are, where they even want the money at, how they want it distributed, and. And working to bring those models up to a bigger uh, public importance is like
0: way more important than the city council just unilaterally like cutting a police budget. You yeah. know what I mean? No, I, I guess so, I guess with us, like we just saw what happened. We saw how vague and non-transparent it was, mm-hmm. and how that they they just celebrated. Hey, we all this money is getting cut from the budget. Yeah, we, we won. <laughs> We're done. Yeah. It's, it's what does that mean? You know, it's it's a uh,
1: it's a it's a non-solution. I yeah. mean, in in, in in all reality, it. It fits towards the popular framing of this real political call, this real genuine evidenced r- reasoning that many of these organizers have, and just slashes it to budget. So I agree with you completely. It's politics. It's politics for sure. We got to get politics out of politics for one uh, <laughs> service and representation, and and I and I, I really do think like even just basic public service should be a community effort. You know, the, the representatives and the people that we're electing aren't meant to be. Um, you know, like independent voices of reason for us. They're supposed to engage in consistent, deliberative dialogue with us, and when they fail, they should be voted out of office immediately. And they should understand that themselves. They should understand, I'm just here to be a vessel of your interest using my experience, my legal experience, whatever it is they have that qualifies them for office, and use your concerns as my framing from how I discuss politics, and if I fail you, you have the right to vote me out, and you shouldn't vote me back in if I, if I suck and I don't do my job. If we could maybe frame representation and in, in public service in that way, we'd do a, a lot better as a country. So <laughs>
2: where, does, where does one's own ideology, right, being, yeah. uh, I don't know, libertarian or democratic socialist, and you are trying to represent a community, mm-hmm. where does that ideology fall into place if all you're doing is having dialogues? With a community, which I am one hundred percent for, I, <laughs> yeah. I think should be applied to any problem, right? Not the, not just the defund the police. Yeah. When we come across any policy issue, political issue, uh, any problem that ar- arises in a community, it should be with dialogue. But like
1: I was saying, yeah, um, I would say intuitively off the top of my head uh, that there's like two two parts of this. One is that ideological. Uh, framing of policy is generally toxic. Like, if you come out here and say, uh, and maybe sometimes in in a really polarized America it works, but it really doesn't work in other countries, uh, even where there's a lot stronger political parties, a lot of people market towards the direct interest of the community at hand. And of course it's framed through ideological lens, but the first part is you win the mandate of the people when you win the election. If you win a plurality of the votes and you're like, well, here's my ideological positions on these points, it's like, well, that's how I'm going to govern. You know, like I'm going to go into office and I'm going to – well, the people obviously like these ideas enough for me to win this legitimate election, so that's what I'm going to govern based on. Uh, but it shouldn't – I think framing it ideologically ultimately causes problems, saying I'm a conservative Republican and I want conservative Republican policy or I'm a socialist. I want socialist policies. Uh It it just turns people off. Like, just say what it is your policy is. Say what you're gonna do. And especially if you're running and working at the community level, they understand the community issue. Say, well, here's our solution to community issue X, and it'll work better. Um, The second thing I would say is like, beyond uh, traditional, like, partisan politics, marketing yourself off, like, on an ideology, um, it's important to just figure out where the community's working outside of the campaign you know like even if you have certain ideological dispositions if you're finding that a policy that you're approaching or an approach that you're taking is not working like let's like comprehensively work towards changing that so it fits the the interest of the community because um, plenty of people will run on a thing and win and then they'll try to do things and those things are unpopular uh the thing is like and it's also probably political instinct it's like realizing when you need to make compromises, realizing when you need to like work with business interests more or whatever it is like you you have to balance your approaches for sure um so yeah the t l d r tldr to to my answer here is like i think you even if you have an ideological frame to a policy issue uh you know you should pursue it i mean you have the mandate to do that uh but you shouldn't be draconian about policy, like you should be willing to change your models and ex- and how you even frame them to your policies as you know time goes on maybe
0: i don't know no I, I it's a tricky it's a tricky topic because I think in some places if you frame yourself as like i'm a I'm a you know gun toten conservative republican yeah. and you know God and guns is my thing and and you're, like, in a rural, very red, strong red town, then everyone just sees that, oh, he's conservative, he likes God, you know, he's all about keeping the Second Amendment, whatever, then they're just going to yeah. look at this conservative ideology and vote him in. So yeah. it, sometimes if you play to your people with the ideology, that's all they want, right? Yeah,
1: I mean, that's politics for sure. I mean, that's the classic politics. And, like, I was trying to print my answer with, like, this answer probably doesn't work as well for an America that's uniquely as partisan and polarized as it is right now, as in really whatever district you're in <laughs> the real political fight. And it, and it's true of almost every big race that's happened in the last probably th- uh, three years since the 2018 midterms, for sure the real political fights that people are interested in are either like swing fights, like for instance, like a Senate race in South Carolina where the Democrat and Republican are running real close or in the primaries because for instance, in a place like uh, downtown Austin that's like represented by like precinct three of the city council, like there's gonna be a Democrat and Republican run. But who's gonna win the race? It's gonna be the Democrat like ninety-nine percent of the time. The Republican's gonna win like twenty percent of the votes, whatever. So <clears throat> the real political fights are taking place in the primaries and that's where real interesting politics are taking shape. Because we see like even Mike Siegel running for uh for the primary here in Congress to represent this part of Austin, like our zip code. And, uh, you know, like the political fight before that is interesting because you have, like, the moderate versus Mike Siegel, who's like a New Deal, like Green New Deal progressive Democrat. And that's where you see, like, real, like, debate taking place. Because when it comes to the general, like, the Republican's going to call him a Democrat, the Democrat's going to say that's a Republican, and then nothing happens. The race is won because of the unique partisan divide that shaped the
0: politics of this place for... decades. (laughs) decades. <laughs> so it, it yeah. even seems now a lot of the framing, uh, for say like a Mike Siegel when it comes to, uh, you know, being more towards the green new deal type things is labeling them as socialists. Yeah. Framing it like that, like a Bernie Sanders type camp, you know? Um,
1: and it's an, and it, like I said, yeah, it's, it's politics and it works for the left just as it does for the right. Uh, you, you know, you call them out and they did it on the vice presidential debates. I mean, they're calling Joe Biden and Kamala Harris radical leftist socialist. Uh, but, you know, they throw those words out and it works. But then the left says, you know, like, oh, this guy is like a pro, uh, pro-life, pro like, you know, gun-toting, like conservative, white supremacist, Republican, blah, blah, blah. You know, and it works. Uh, it's unfortunate consequence of democracy, I guess, <laughs> this kind of polarization. You know, because it,
2: it was very funny whenever you brought up the, like, how can, council members, uh, councilmen should just go and have dialogues uh, continuously with the... With, with the community and have a bigger emphasis on, a, on analysis, right? Because they are supposed to put the uh, interests of the community first. Mm-hmm. It's funny because I myself go down this rabbit hole that Tarek <laughs> is very familiar with of monarchism. Oh my God. <laughs> and I, I'm not going to lie, you sound a lot like the
1: people arguing for a monarchy. A monarchy? <laughs> we should have a Leviathan. Uh,
0: Tom, good old we, Thomas Hobbes. We get, yeah, we'll
1: get, we'll get everybody all together and we'll all just unanimously elect a single person and they'll have full, total control.
0: No, I don't yeah. believe in I mean, that's that. what the Roman Republic would do. They would elect a dictator in times yeah. of massive crisis. In a
1: crisis, they would... You know, I've, I, I'll say one thing. Um, I love democracy. I'm a fervent believer in democracy, but I also believe in the capacities of technology. And I believe that one of the future ideas of politics that Americans and the world in general is going to have to get used to in a very data-driven world is that we're going to have to inform our policies and decisions based mainly on bureaucratic rules that no one has access to that are framed through technology that elected officials sort of just meld in between. So like, what do you mean? So like the, I'm talking, I guess I think America and the West in general is moving almost towards technocracy in general, like, just a broad form of democratically legitimized sort of because you know even american democracy comes under such deep scrutiny how it works towards general t- technocracy and what i mean like technocracy right here I, I i just mean like uh technology data uh especially information on the climate like models and and, and uh public analysis and policy analysis that's done over things like it from the economy to the environment are going to be like consequential informing political decisions. Um, But I do believe like most fervently in the power of democracy to set that up. Like, we should be electing people that are going to represent their communities but are also going to listen to science, that are going to work very diligently with data and that are going to be willing to create policies based on data. Um,
0: So So then what if you're in the situation where your community wants you to, uh, like elects you, and you're in office, and your community elected you because you said you weren't going to uh, get rid of, um, say, the oil business in in this particular district or or some of this the fossil fuel practices, and you're going to fight against the Green New Deal. But say the, the statistics, the data, and the science is saying otherwise. So what should the politician do? Should he listen to the hard facts, or should he listen to his people?
1: So we have to begin to realize that the interest of our communities can be illuminated through, like, truly analytic and resourceful data. Uh, And, you know, communities are going to have interests that sometimes are incompatible with data. And then this goes into a very broad schema of things. I mean, I come from West Texas. Like, West Texans have have it, you know, in their deep within their souls that like the oil industry must thrive fracking has to continue to exist fracking has been a big debate problem now all of a sudden again um even though evidence and 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 thus an overwhelming amount of evidence suggests like fracking is bad in the long term it can ruin water and soil quality it's it, it even has been shown to like cause seismic activity like it's obviously sorry it's obviously bad in the long term right like it's we shouldn't be fracking. But the interests of those communities are like, well, economically, we need to keep fracking. So it, it just depends right here, like the representatives uh, being a politician is always going into to enter into uh, internal political calculus saying, you know, what's the opportunity cost? Is the opportunity cost of losing the oil industry bigger than losing like the credibility I have like in the environment? Of course, for a Republican center, our Republican leaders in, in West Texas, it, you have to meet the culture. I mean, the culture is like, well, defend business interests first. Whereas in a place, you know, maybe like in Cambridge, it would have been different. It would have been the first thing is like, oh, we need to protect worker regulations and, like, the environment first.
0: But are those in line with the, like, citizens' um, demands? Like, in Cambridge, yeah. you know, like, what, what the first step for a politician might be? like those things like protecting workers rights and 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 those sort of things aren't they aligned with the people that they're representing
1: yeah exactly and and that and i think that's why it calls back really to like the first when you were when we were first talking about this and i gave that like two part answer on like how politicians should, should frame themselves in the communities it's like you're not going to win office unless the things you're talking about and the things you're putting on the table resonate with enough people to win um so uh, it depends where you're. I mean, you're basing it, it. It depends where you're basing you know your your political activity from, uh, and you know, data and is in itself uh, one thing that we have to realize is subjective. But data can help us inform how we create policies and respond to our communities. Even like articles I've written at the Harvard Political Review, I wrote one called "A Revolutionary Perspective on Our Crisis, Part One." There's a part two coming out, <laughs> <laughs> and inside of that, there's a visualization of. Uh, like police killings and uh, our police killings against especially like black men and it's like a data visualization and that's just a part of my article but like there's an like an, the awesome people at the HPR's data team put that together for me they use publicly accessible data to like help inform my journalistic message and help produce evidence and that seems kind of maybe abstract and dislocated from this but I think it resonates the same fundamental logic as in politicians don't need to just be deal brokers anymore they don't need to just be going to each business or the Chamber of Commerce, signing hands, doing events. Like, we really should just be informing ourselves on data. And at the least, if data is subjective, I think we can really sit down and say, well, we want to push for a Green New Deal. We want to push for worker regulations, homelessness assistance, et cetera, et cetera. Let's sit down and come up with, like, a comprehensive approach or at least a comprehensive policy suggestion to market to people based on Data. Data is an excellent way to not just justify policy, but also enact policy. As I guess the point.
2: My thing is, I feel that data is uh, oh, what's the phrase uh, a double ended sword or a d- oh, double, sure, yeah, yeah. double
0: sided blade or whatever. You, yeah, yeah. yeah, you know. Two, what yeah, whatever. <laughs> yeah, that's the guy. <laughs>
2: yeah. um, because uh, have you seen the movie Brexit?
1: I on have HBO. Not. No,
2: I haven't. It is. Stunning, and I recommend all our listeners to view it. But it's it's about data. It, it really is. Sure. It's not. Uh, I'm sure you've heard of like Cambridge Analytica, mm-hmm. right? That like Facebook's used. It's not Cambridge Analytica, but they use a different company called Aggregate Aggregate IQ, I think, uh, from Canada, and they use data to find potential voters that have never gone out to vote before, and that's why they managed to have the ha- have. Brexit pass, right? Um, so with that, I think politicians can continue just being those, those uh, what is it, D- deal brokers. Yeah. Right, shaking hands <laughs> because you know through data, through whatever they do on social media, you know what they think, so you just sell them the right thing and they're going to vote for you.
1: Yeah, I-, I definitely can see the concern for that. And uh, I think it's a, a, v- a valid concern that's been raised against... Like of lots of uh, recent theoretical musings around left wing populism, like a lot of people think like left wing populism is like the inherent response to like right wing populism, um, meaning here like you know like just acclimate to the community's interest, like promise big eco- promise big economic structural changes and you'll probably win, and of course that can be informed by overwhelming swaths of data. One of the most easy things to market in this country. Right now, that I don't think enough people realize that they can market, especially on the left, is economic inequality in the light of the pandemic and even before then. I mean, you. I mean, it's just an overwhelming swath of data that, like, e- even when contextualized, just to most Americans, sounds absurd. Like saying the top one percent of people own more than the uh, bottom fifty percent, like times like fifty or whatever. Like, just and that's not a real statistic, right? But it fits the sort of framing. Like, this is just an absurd thing. Uh, and this is the reason you should vote for X. And, and I, think that, uh, I think that's kind of in light of your concern. And, it, and it's interesting to bring it to the Brexit point because, you know, Brexit passed by such a slim margin anyway. But, like, they found unregistered voters through publicly accessible data, and then that's how they market it off. A lot of call centers and political consultants use the same thing. They use publicly available data. The Republican consulting firms do to, like, go door-knocking, and Republicans... And that was one thing that people were real concerned about in the light of Trump's re-election campaign is Republicans are way, way more willing to walk up to doors and knock on them and talk to, that, talk to people than Democrats are, you know, COVID-related and all. <laughs> <laughs> but um, I, think, I think it's true that... And, and I'd like to rehash the idea that I really do think that data is subjective. I think that data can be interpreted in a variety of ways that in the end can support a, a different political positions. But I do think in organizing real community-based local politics that using data that's from the community, and I think especially putting an importance on publicly accessible data, data that's available for everyone, that's produced freely, that's not gatekept. Uh, for instance, there's some great work being done by even Harvard and MIT students that I'll plug uh, like at the Open Internet Initiative uh, at the open collaboration movement in general where, like, they're trying to, like, expand, like, publicly accessible internet hotspots for students and, like, make universal course logs, like, all that kind of stuff. I think that has a uniquely democratizing effect. Like, I think that that innately um, is using data for a good purpose. Like, it's controlled by the public. The public has its own norms and regulations for how it uses that data. And I think it also generally is used in a way that helps like especially the worst of us which is really i think one of the central goals of modern politics is how can we make sure everyone's living at like a certain standard of living like we can afford you know
2: i just feel that i, I guess a fear and concern for me is that data will only lead to more polarization i mean you, you yeah. could take the saying that is the glass half empty or half full right? yeah, well, yeah. The well the data shows data shows <laughs> it's half
1: empty x
2: candidate says it's half full
1: Right. and it, and it, and it's always back to politics. I think I can definitely agree with you there in the sense that uh at least in the in the sense of how m- campaigns market themselves, it's always salesmanship, you know it's always gonna be politics it's always gonna be uh And you always run positive and negative ads, right? You always run ads that are – and, like, say, like, they're run by data. You might have a positive ad that's influenced by data that's convincing to people, but at the same time, you can use the same data negatively. We see that especially with, like, climate change might be even a central one, as in the data seems inescapable that, like, there's something happening. It's anthropogenically sourced, blah, blah, blah. But like even right wing people or like Mike Pence at the president or vice presidential debate can look at that and say like, oh, but like look at our data that suggests like how many jobs your plan's going to destroy, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, so data becomes, you know, if it if it holds this universal validity, perhaps um, it can be commodified by either side to like perhaps do some bad. Maybe that's the point I, I, I see from you, and I think that's valid. I think politics will always market them themselves like that, though. But I think, you, like I said, like that community source, like collective, pol- like collective control over data, whether it's like, especially on things like relating to economic, environmental, or even like policing concerns, like I was talking about. Well, like for instance, <laughs> if AP, if the Austin City Council was able to sit down with like a chart and or, or probably more sophisticated than a chart, like a, a large collection of data that indicates how the police are responding to the community, placed, like, on surveys, collective response, like, subjective responses. They, they're able to, like, inform better policy decisions, I guess is more precisely my point with the framing here, if that I think makes sense. That situ-
0: I, I think in that situation, for sure, like, uh, councilmen collecting data through, sur- yeah. uh, like, a multimodal collection of data to, to assess policy, but... At the same time, like, I always think of, like, the health industry. Like, if if one group of people publish a study about how eggs are bad for you, and then <laughs> some uh, company that owns and, you know, s- uh, sells eggs, right, distributes um, chicken eggs, they publish their own study that shows that eggs are actually good for you. Um, so it, it can, like... Sp- or, I mean,
2: it, it could be another, like, research firm that publishes another <laughs> yeah. study yeah. saying that and eggs are good sp- for you. And that's
1: you. especially, like, a real concern, especially when I think, like, we live in a time of, like, very ambiguous cultural authority to sources and data, which is something that ha- would have to be corrected over the long term and, like, probably we don't have the answer for right now, which is that, you know, anybody can create and publish data. Anybody can. In fact, lots of people do, like the Western Journal does, for instance. Does that mean that these are credible investigative journalism that are reporting objective facts? Obviously not. In fact, most of the time they're spewing direct misinformation that fuels a political agenda that then gets shared, you know, en masse across Facebook or whatnot and helps inform, like, bad politics. Um, And I I frankly don't know. That's something that we'd have to ask, like, statisticians or, like, good network designers or something like that. Like, how can we prevent, in in a still democratic way, like, massive amounts of misinformation and and like incur inaccurately reported or inaccurately collected data to be monitored. Cause we have a better idea on like maybe fake news, like monitoring journalistic content that is expressly false, but surveys and data are a lot, lot harder to control, especially when people can just make up blatant lies and then report numbers or data with them, and it's almost impossible to, like, check the credibility of that data unless it's just from a reputable source, you know? Yeah, um, and even the reputable sources,
0: I mean, unless you 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 are interested in in having a subscription to certain academic journals, right? Yeah. It's very hard for the layperson to get a look at the data, to get the oh. data collection, right?
1: Well, yeah, you know, and most of the time they'll, like, source it, and they'll add, like, a footnote or whatever in a paper <laughs> or whatnot that's, like, sourced from blank and blank, but... Most average people that are just sharing this for a political cause are even testifying with it, perhaps on the Senate floor or whatnot, are not gonna do the investigative exhaustive research to figure out exactly how you gathered your data. So I think it goes to what you were saying for sure, like that (coughs) um, data can be amplified by voices that have a political agenda that real data or that like real community awareness would indicate opposite of, or like would indicate that that's like outside of the common sense to pass. they have some real justification to pass now because of X thing, you know, like X
0: X data <laughs> that justifies it. Does uh does any of this intersect with your uh your internship with MJ? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, oh
1: yeah, uh, interning at MJ's campaign uh, on the Senate for Senate. Uh, you know, she uh, working with Impress, uh, as I have because, like I said, like I'm a press coordinator and a press intern. Um, is, is interesting because a lot of what I do is the kind of bareback, like si- simple work that then goes to like the comms team and then that like, gets shipped out and that they market. So a lot of the time what we're really doing is just like putting word to paper, like literally writing down the press release and then in an hour and a half we see a revised version with hyperlinks, blah, 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 gets sent out to like tons of different press contacts. But I do think it's interesting, and I've learned a lot about the process by which that happens. You know, uh, there's a unique form of political messaging for one that takes place, which is, you know, that they're trying to carry the conversation in a very particular way using the words that they're using. Like, that's something we learn immediately. Like, talking points is a huge thing. Uh, Using certain vocabulary, using certain key phrases that are meant to, like, carry on the political brand, you know? But then the other thing when it comes to communications, like you're saying, that mass, like, variability of, of the information that comes out is honestly, like, one of the most ambiguous things to me. I have a hard time understanding, honestly, how the advertising almost works. Like, a lot of the huge things that networks and political companies do nowadays is call bank, right? Like, they constantly call bank. And I've call banked for to- so many campaigns, and I still to this day struggle to understand what it does because, like, one out of the 50 calls you get is with a potential voter that, like, already has an opinion and then all hangs up on you or whatever. And the rest are disconnected calls or... So I think there has to be, like, a question of, like, maybe changing the techniques of our marketing in, like, a social media era or whatnot. But uh, working for MJ has been cool because we're the basic, like, idea creators on the press side, I guess. Or at least idea communicators. (laughs) Like, we just get the information that is sort of given to us and, you know... Uh, put it all together and then sell it off as you know advertising really it's interesting though
0: how how did you even get the uh internship because you know you you're from odessa or from odessa area area. you (laughs) went to harvard (laughs) and then you got shipped back uh to you know texas after covid yeah but how did you end up with the mj
1: so you know i knew i was going to move out to austin Uh, during that pandemic and so like I reached out to certain like UT professors to see if any of them wanted an internship or like a reader or an assistant never even got an email back so (laughs) but then I just was like looking for political internships or service-related internships in Austin I just wanted to do something like while I was here like contribute to service or whatnot and um, I like Journey like knew uh, of like internship bulletins or like my girlfriend yeah Journey shout out, <laughs> <laughs> uh, knew about that. And, uh, like, let me know on like the Texas politics project, which like is a bulletin for political internships. And really, I just saw an ad for MJ's, uh, asked for like a writing sample, whatnot. I completed an application, uh, did like three or four interviews and then got in. I've been working on it since like mid beginning of August. And okay. Uh, just in the debate, as the election draws nearer, you do more things, but you know, uh, it'll be an interesting way, race to, sh- to see shape out in such a, a assuredly
0: ro- solid red state as, as Texas is. <laughs> it's weird because, uh, I, I, me and I we're talking about like how, how they're looking in terms of the polls, and it's what, like, uh, uh, what's his name, Cornyn is yeah. up uh, 10 points, 12 Ten points, points, something yeah. like that. Yeah, and um, you
1: know, uh, one, and th- and this this is f- kind of funny because it calls back um, to the subjectivity of data, but it also depends what poll you're saying. Like the polls that the press team will publish are the ones that are coming out from like UTL Passer or whatnot that like show Cornyn like three points ahead of MJ based on you know because it's just random samples. That's all it is. We get they get a random sample and it can have a variety. I mean, you have to get within the margin of error or whatnot, but like it can be anything. But the aggregate polls suggests that like just based on like what we can expect on voter turnout of like traditional republican voters that yeah like MJ's like probably going to be like 3 to 8 points behind i mean you'll never know um, they said the same thing about beto and then beto got within like basically the margin of error to winning that race so it would be exciting to see uh MJ win MJ win but uh we'll we'll count on it Cornyn, uh, Cornyn has a lot of money. (laughs) As as most Republican uh, senators do, he has quite a bit of money to use at his expense.
0: (laughs) Well, like like the reason why I found it so interesting, the polls, because me and Arturo were having a very similar conversation. Like, I mean, ever since uh, twenty sixteen, like I have had very little trust in like how accurate polls can predict an election. Yeah. Yeah. So it's very weird to just put your like complete faith in in a poll, and like you said, you can have such variability when it comes to polling, yeah, um, and in the sampling. So because
2: you might see that Joe Biden's up right now in in terms of polls, but the, I mean, there's there's a part of me that thinks uh, like you just you can't count Donald Trump out.
1: You can't. No, the, I, I think that's a like, valid a valid that's a very valid way of framing it too because. Like, I think it was Michigan, I guess, in 2016. Like, Clinton was polling, like, six points ahead, and then Trump won by, like, a margin, like 10,000 votes or whatnot, just because Democratic voter turnout was lower and Republican turnout was, for some reason, higher. And one of the things polling cannot do, especially public polling on, you know, who are you going to vote for, is figure out who's actually going to go vote. There can you can have you have the problem of false responses. You have the problem of achieving randomness in a sample. I mean, you just call a bunch of random people, but you have no idea who's really picking up. It depends where you're calling. And then, like at the end of the day, they'll tell you who they're going to maybe vote for, but then they actually have to go vote. Um, and you know, like maybe the problem, and a lot of people think it's the problem, is you know, like the Democrats really energize themselves from like especially like immigrants, minorities, and young people and Republicans really energize themselves from, like, old, especially, like, white people, and one of these groups has a way easier time voting, right? Or, like, one of these cohorts has a way easier time voting. So I think, like, the new political pressure for, like, expanding voting, and especially, you know, not, not, not having one ballot drop-off station per county in Texas is, like, certainly a good fight to have because the Demo- it's not just for Democrats. Like, the Democrats represent a vast coalition of interests, and a lot of those interests revolve around being able to vote. And... Uh, Republican, I, I I, mean, I hold that opinion pretty fervently, is that Republicans gerrymander districts, like, they manufacture congressional districts. Like, they they realize that, like, if all these groups come out to vote, that they'll lose, like, because that's just a lot of people. Um,
0: so they're very interested in voter suppression. <laughs> how <laughs> how have line. you felt about the uh, conversation around mail-in voting then?
1: Yeah. Um, you know, uh, we have to have some kind of lend or like standard of credibility to consider things like valid public concerns and one of the ways that's not done is by the president of the United States like going and explicitly like we're regurgitating like Facebook boomer lies like on like 30,000 ballots were found at the bottom of a creek in a bag in Pennsylvania whereas it was like six ballots that like came from a veteran's hospital that, like, got misplaced, and then the dude immediately got fired after for it. Like, it's just, like, literal lies, right? So that's problematic. Congressional record also shows that, like, the actual fraudulency rate of most mail-in ballots is, like, below 1% of those ballots. And uh, maybe maybe that is significant, but also it's, like, you're still going to have millions of people show up on election day to vote, You shouldn't call the election on November 3rd until all the votes are counted, obviously. But it's not like everyone's going to be mail-in voting. So, like, I think the real margin by which mail-in voting can be considered fraudulent enough to perhaps tip the scale in one person's favor, like a swing state like Pennsylvania, Michigan, whatnot, is pretty unlikely. I mean, there's going to be larger concerns around the election I think people are concerned about anyway. They're going to be concerned about a variety of things, like – we might not know who the winner is of the election until, like, November 18th, 19th or something, you know? <laughs> do, you think,
0: do you think this is going to be another situation, like, in 2000, where the Supreme Court has to yeah. step in and, and uh, make a ruling in regards to, you know?
1: If not the Supreme Court, I mean, the, the thing is Trump has, like, I think a two-pronged approach here, which is one is inflame your supporters so much to think the election is fraudulent that they'll do things themselves – like refuse to te- like refuse to condemn white supremacy distinctively, like tell the Proud Boys to stand by, like et cetera, and you know that is just populism. I mean, it's just like inflaming those groups, saying like you know like you might have to go be poll watchers. That's one approach. The other approach is the president, is still the president, he has an extensive, massive legal team, and he has the whole Republican Party. So Republican legislatures like Michigan, uh, Pennsylvania, that are controlled by the Republicans will actually be the ones to slate the set or have the, a chance to change the set of electors that actually go to the House in January and actually elect a president. Trump is going to go on probably the most massive legal litigation battle since 2000, if not bigger, where like they're gonna be in every state court and every court that they can contesting results, demanding recounts. They're gonna make it just a complete shit show, you know, like no doubt about it. So even if there's civil unrest or political unrest, there's also going to be a massive challenge behind us that's being obscured by the media, you know, kind of being focused on one thing, uh, which is the massive legal battle that's taking place where now state senators are also, like, changing slates of electors, sending in the House. They're going to be faithless electors, and they're going to elect Trump, you know. Uh, that's, I think, a concern that's, like, being way underplayed. I think it was reported in Vox, too, but... Um, I think that's honestly the most concerning thing. I think it's more concerning than, like, the street violence that's being instigated or talked about, the uh, the politics. Like, really the most important thing is, like, there's going to be a massive legal litigation bout. Like, 2,000 would have never been able to know with Gore and Bush. <laughs> <laughs> and it's going to be... uh, Like, unless something vigilant is done, like, the Republicans will probably win out. Like, I, I really do think that they have the capacity in those legislatures and the legal capacity of the president's lawyers like, would find a way to like make it work in their favor, mm-hmm. if not at the least to completely destabilize the transition of power. Um,
0: kind of scary subject. <laughs> but yeah, it's really... I, I,
1: Sounds
0: I mean, exciting. I, <laughs> all the chaos. Yeah. Uh, but I, I mean, I, I agree with you there. I think this is going to play out in, in, in the courts because even now you have the courts figuring out the, the kinks of mail-in voting for some states... Um, I forgot what recently there was a couple a couple states that had uh, uh, their supreme the the state's respective supreme court ruling on various issues regarding that state's mail in ballot when you have to turn in the ballot et cetera um, yeah I don't know and, and I think it's a good point like all the street fighting and and stuff like that is like a good distraction for the yeah. for the stuff that's actually uh, gonna make the difference that's going on behind the scenes
1: well so. because you know I mean I mean, I don't I think Americans in general no. like the president is elected by the electoral college but that has a variety of implica- implications in a process that most americans aren't aware of like the actual process by which state legislatures elect electors that go to the house of representatives that stage a formal vote that actually puts the president into power like it's a way bigger process than most people think and there's lots of moving parts and that that can i mean the trump administration has not shied away from manipulating the laws around elections or whatnot uh for the last four years of its tenure so i don't know why anyone would find it surprising that they're going to be willing to go on like such a massive litigation battle i think okay so yeah uh i'm so i'm obviously a leftist i i do uh you know you know Biden and Harris are kind of avoiding the question right now of packing the Supreme Court or at least putting justices on the Supreme Court. I'm more of like an Ed Markey Democrat, where I'm like, you know, like Republicans have unfairly contested for power for, you know, two decades, three decades. They've gerrymandered up districts. They're putting a, they're letting a lame duck president perhaps put a nominee on the Supreme Court. So if you have to end the filibuster and you need to put. Justice on the Supreme Court to restore it to a balance that's like respective of the interest of the American people, like I believe in the cause. But I don't know. I guess we'll see how
0: the political fight shapes itself though. I it, mean, just
2: it sounds very dangerous. But you what were you gonna
0: packing the court sounds very dangerous. Yeah, I mean it does. Yeah. Um, but
2: just like playing playing their game again because I mean what what would be stopping once you have that power, what would be stopping the Democratic Party from gerrymandering to their own benefit?
1: If if you want to keep on playing the game. So, yeah, like I think the actual political process of installing a new uh, or new justices to the Supreme Court is kind of far fetched in itself. I don't think the Democrats are willing to take on the political fight that it'll take. I mean, like like one thing you said, it would also really feed into the game is I think it would really, really energize Republican turnout. It's smart that it's not being answered until after the election, obviously, because the Republicans have the valid concern it's like they're gonna put liberal justices on the Supreme Court like we should like do something about it um but like I was saying like I do fervently believe in ending the filibuster outright in the first place it's it's a result honestly of 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 a really antiquated political process that didn't even always exist it's not constitutionally provided you know it's just a parliamentary procedure it's been used by both Democrats and Republicans to just stall policies it's been exact like ex- exponentially and unproportionately used in the last ten years. I mean, really, since Mitch McConnell took such like ferocious charge against like the Affordable Care Act and and a Obama presidency. So uh, when it comes to the Supreme Court, uh, it's going to be interesting to see how the political fight uh, plays out. Although I would say in a perfect world, I think either justice wouldn't be nominated or there was more seats on the court. Uh, but you know, I don't think any other than maybe like ed markey are really gonna like stick to the guns of that unless the if the democratic Party's really like pulls away from it uh but man they got it the ending the filibuster just seems like a common sense thing to do it's wasted american people's time you know like it's wasted everybody's time i mean sitting up there for a bernie sanders has one that's like really famous um like on youtube in fact there's like the lo-fi edition, like, eight hours of Bernie Sanders <laughs> filibusting with, like, a lo-fi beat, and, like, that's a cool cultural artifact and whatnot, but the actual filibuster as a procedure should probably get scrapped,
0: <laughs> I would say. <laughs> yeah, what, what was it, Ted Cruz and uh, Green Eggs? Green Eggs and Ham. Green eggs oh, and my ham. gosh. Like, uh, that's
1: just such a mockery, is it not, of, like, the whole process. Like, it creates good memes and everything, but it's, like, They're, like, on our coin, you know, like, wasting taxpayer dollars to, like, sit there and read Green Eggs and Ham or whatnot. Like, get the filibuster out. But if, like, if Justice Barrett is nominated and put on the Supreme Court, I don't think it's going to be ultimately the most destructive thing in the world. I do think, like, it does pose valid concerns to, like, Roe v. Wade and things like that and her previous record. But I don't honestly see how those will go all the way to the court and get really impactful hearings that the court will be willing <laughs> to overturn because most justices understand that the legitimacy of the court's tied to its public opinion most americans at least most polling shows that they support roe v wade they support abortion to a certain extent and uh there's also the issue of, like stereo decisis in the courts like they don't want to just undermine a legal president over ideology that will like completely screw over the entire legal system for decades like but when it comes like, really things that are important, like, the most important thing the Supreme Court's going to hear, in my opinion, is, like, stuff on the individual mandate and other provisions of, the, of Obamacare, of the Affordable Care Act. That can put 20 to 30 million Americans out of their health care, like, instantly. So uh, the fight should be there, or the fight should be in health care more generally if, if she's nominated, I think.
0: So you think that that the Affordable Care Act is, is going to be the biggest thing fought out over the next couple of years in the Supreme Court?
1: I think at the least it's one of the most significant ones by which the Supreme Court leaning towards a conservative majority would actually act on. Is the way I mean I mean to phrase this is like I think like the uh, debate on abortion or like transgender worker rights whatever other things that have been ruled on recently are important and like obviously the parties and even justices probably take strong opinions on. But I think the one thing that will be really actionable—that's like a real political fight in the courts—will be what happens to the Affordable Care Act, because that court would definitely like work to like the Trump administration's in, in court now, trying to repeal it, and that could get to a Supreme Court, and that could have like real consequences. Uh, say a Trump presidency happens again, and we have another four years, that will be one of the huge fights is health care, because you, you know there's still no comprehensive health care plan and. With a conservative-leaning court, you very well might see it uh, rule against the ACA, which yeah. would be concerning. I mean, that's a and that's
0: people's insurance, you know. Like, yeah, I mean, it did uh, lower. Like, I think in 2010, 25 almost 25 percent Americans didn't have health insurance, and it lowered it to either 12 or 13 percent. Yeah, I mean, so it made made a big difference in terms of coverage.
1: Like, say what you want about, <laughs> uh, yeah, say what you want about Obamacare and whatnot but like it it has helped uninsured people in the country at least there are less uninsured people now than there were even you know 10 years ago yeah. and of course longer that longer out than that point and it's especially in a texas issue too talking about like interning at MJ, for mj one of the biggest things we focus on on the press side and i guess really from you know the campaigning side is healthcare because you know the republican party has a in our opinion, a pretty bad record on health care. They haven't really produced, like, a substantial alternative to Obamacare. It really looks like just taking it away without adding, and uh, the concerns being, like, they won't even cover pre-existing conditions, which was something that was immediately remedied by Obamacare. Um, We'll hope so. I mean, it'll be a brutal political fight, but it seems like many of these fights are going to be hills people are willing to die on, really. Um, We just hope that good organizers and politicians will stick to their guts or whatnot because, you know, people's, like, working class, like, poor people's healthcare depends on it, for sure. Is is
0: MJ kind of along with, uh, like, Biden and Harris and, like, uh, having, you know, Medicaid with the public option? Yeah, yeah. You know?
1: uh, MJ is not, yeah, like, a Medicare-for-all Democrat, for sure. And that's interesting to talk about, you know, like because I, I, like, you know, I believe in Medicare-for-all and I believe in those sort of approaches, or at least in, in, in part. Um, but, like... And so people have questioned me about that before, too. It's like, and there, you know, there was a recent story that came out of the Houston Chronicle that was talking about how M.J. Hager, like, voted for Mitt Romney in 2012 or, or something like that. Like, she voted for Republican. And that might, like, have some kind of bar, bipartisan appeal or, or whatnot, but uh, a lot of people ask me, especially, like, even my fellow interns, like, well, how are you comfortable, you know, working on a campaign that doesn't support all of these approaches? And to me, it's like, again, it comes back to that like cornerstone question of service and politics especially in the era we're in now i i, I unlike many of my colleagues and friends like really do believe in peace mill progressivism i believe that like we should take what we can we should fight internally we should fight electorally to like win these advances fight legally to win these advances like grassroots one-to-one organizing super important but like when it comes to like you know working for mj hager i think about it just as much about putting like keeping Texans health care as much as I think about it, like getting John Cornyn out of office, you know, like we have to let, and the left more generally, I think needs to think more politically. Uh, That's reason probably why the left has lost so many critical fights in the United States is the right. And Republicans are willing to make coalitions with people. They're willing to make compromise. They're willing to play politics like more specifically. They're more willing to do incremental things. And that might be problematic and it might not suit the interest of Everyone you're trying to serve, you know, but I do believe like I'll, I'll work for a Democrat that doesn't agree with all my beliefs if it means like working against a broader enemy that we see as like
0: the GOP or whatever, you know. And no, if, I, th- I think that's I think that's really like the key thing there, like being able to work with another Democrat um, or even a say Republican, if, yeah, just because some of your views don't align. If you have like one key view that does align and you want to progress that, you know, like yeah. you said, piecemeal progressive. Uh, progressivism. Um, I think that's really important. Because, like, I, I think, like you said, a lot of Democrats right now, it's like all or nothing, right? Yeah. Like, either we have Medicare for all or we, you know, have nothing. Like, and it does, the, it's not really, uh, you know, yeah, and making a coalition.
1: That's the problem electorally as well. Like, trust me, like, I had my reservations with Biden as a president as well, you know? Like, I mean going all the way from the Anita Hill thing, like to now like there's obviously the question of sexual assault and those sorts of things, which it makes it very hard to overcome because that's one of those things that you wouldn't immediately reject someone on. But like you have to I think you frame it like Noam Chomsky said. Like he's like the the German social democrats made the same problems in like the Weimar Republic. Like they let fascism almost rise to power because of like ideological Puritan politics, where they were refusing to make coalitions, where they were refusing to literally like fight fascism. Uh, I just hope the same mistakes aren't made in the United States. You know, like we have to be willing to to work politically, like to do the things. Like we're in a, a we're in dire straits, in my opinion. You know, like we have to be willing to to do things we wouldn't normally otherwise do. And if a Biden presidency does prevail, you know that gives us way more opportunity as progressives to put pressure on that administration. Like, it will give us caucuses. If the Democrats control all levels of government, well, that's the time that you would really see like leftist and progressive movements getting started. It's like, well, you guys have the podium, like pass these policies, do these things. So, I don't know, maybe that that long-sightedness, keeping all of those political priorities straight is I think super important, but is missed out by a lot of leftists especially leftists that are refusing to vote or are voting uh especially in like swing states or Texas
0: like voting for third parties like it's just not the time for me to do that
1: maybe another election
0: <laughs> so so you don't so you don't so people who uh are voting for third party candidates you, you think that's uh maybe maybe not a I don't want to use the word bad right I don't think you're you're probably no, yeah. looking down at them yeah stupid <laughs>
1: i i think i think it's you know, I, I appreciate and respect the courage it takes to vote that way. And, like, it, it is voting your conscience. Like, you, you are voting with – like, in an ideal world, would I, like, vote for the Green Party? I think the Green Party is a great party, you know? like And I think, like, they have, like, great politicians. Like, Howie Hawkins is an interesting – like, and also, like, a real working-class guy. Am I going to vote for Howie Hawkins in 2020 against Donald Trump? No. Because the, the the fight that's being made clear here that a lot of people forget to think about, I think, is – the fight for the presidency is the same fight is and is in fact synonymous to the fight for the federal judiciary is synonymous to the fight of how we staff federal bureaucracies is synonymous to the fight that we're going to take on education healthcare uh, the the housing and urban development program which has been completely devastated like we have to realize that a biden administration is not biden and harris like walking up to the white house alone they're staffing they're creating a cabinet those people will be people that i think Of course, like, if we're thinking about how we orient the self-interest of democratic politics, like, they're obviously going to do much better for us than, like, us voting for third-party candidates losing an election and then getting four more years of Trump, like, you know, working more. Like, even if Democrats were to win, you know, in 2024, that's going to be four more years of a mess to clean up. That, who knows how much, how much really can be cleaned up at that point if the judiciary is so fundamentally transformed.
0: Um, Yeah. Yeah, no, bureaucrats and judges outlast uh, administrations. They're you know? very
1: important. They're super important. And they outlast administrations by decades, you know. And uh, that's a super important political fight. That, the, that, and that's what I mean to say about that weird anecdote about the way way Weimar Germany or whatever. It's like fighting that is like a legal thing. It's a political thing. Like you, you can be Puritan and ideological as, as much as you want, but then you're going to lose ground. And so when the time does come for when a leftist or a coalition government for your interest comes into play, you're not going to be able to get anything you wanted done in the first place, you know? Uh, So yeah, I'll be voting for Joe Biden. (laughs) (laughs) Long story short. Even if it bothers me a little bit to bother for Joe Biden, uh, and of course, like, I don't agree with all of Biden's policies. It's like, it's like looking at, you know, two completely opposite political trajectories and saying, like, you know, I'll sit on the sidelines for this one, like... It doesn't fly by me, <laughs>
0: personally. No, that's that's a very fair point. I mean, I can understand both sides, right? I can understand why someone uh, doesn't want to look at it as like, well, I mean, I don't really support either candidate, but I'm going to support this candidate because, like, it's just what's best for the country. Um, and I, I, I don't know. I can understand both sides of the argument, but mm-hmm. it, it's tricky. It's tricky because I, I don't like to look at, like, voting for the president as, like, a betting race, right? Yeah. So... <laughs> How would you feel about the electoral college being um, uh, what's based the word? Uh, proportionally? Based proportionally. Oh, like a PR system for the
1: electoral college? Okay, yeah, I think going back to piecemeal progressivism, something must be done to the electoral college. If it would be more politically expedient to to set it up as a proportional system, or at least where you like you completely like at the federal level get rid of faithless electors, that which like you know like there's districts for instance and each elector represents the district whoever won the plurality of the vote. I mean that's much better than having faithless electors that can be like modified by a state legislature. I'm really on the opposite side of the uh, of this like I I do think the electoral college is going to stay around in some way, but I I do think it will end up being a kind of like procedural thing. A lot of Americans already think of it like, even prior to 2016 as sort of a procedural thing like the president's really elected by the people, but then the electoral college is like a ceremonious way of doing it. The Stamp. Yeah, <laughs> but it's obviously not the case, right? Like the popular vote can go. Oh, the, sorry. The popular vote can go one way, and the and the electoral college, the electors can go another way. Especially if you have faithless electors, which, uh, like like are electors that can cast a ballot for anyone, and you know, like some of them are these kind of people that like voted for, like, Colin Powell in 2012 or whatever, like, completely absurd stuff that is not representing for the mandate of the vote that was given. Um, so, you know, what I, what I mean by that is, like, piecemeal progressive in me is, like, whether it's a PR system you establish or you abolish it, whatever's politically expedient to modify that thing and to get rid of those outstanding problems, like, uh, I'm, I'm for. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's a bad system. It's an undemocratic system, too.
0: No, I, I agree because like it's weird looking at uh you know times in history where the popular vote and the electoral college have been <laughs> just not the same whatsoever, right? And uh, even even when looking at some of the landslide elections like Reagan or FDR, mm-hmm. like yeah, all of the electoral votes are say going to Reagan, but the popular vote's actually kind of close. Yeah, you know. <laughs> and same thing with FDR. I think it was nineteen thirty two landslide right but the popular vote was like 48 um, <laughs> you know for it, makes, a, it, yeah, exa- it, it makes it look a lot different it makes it makes it kind of weird to look at it's like oh maybe actually you know if we didn't have the electoral college it'd be pretty close <laughs> we wouldn't be calling it a landslide so
2: but also then like uh, uh you just have some more voices heard if it was yeah. proportional because there are going to be republicans in california yeah. that are not going to have their vote for president right and there are going to be Democrats here in Texas that aren't going to have...
1: Their votes, kind of, yeah. essentially. Yeah, it does come across that way. I mean, because generally the way the slate works, even if there's faithless electors or whatever that will cast for the opposite party that wins the state, like, you know, that's red state, blue state. Like, all the electors are slated for the one that wins the plurality of the votes. Even if the plurality of the votes, like, for instance, is 10,000 votes. Like, that's all the electors. Um, so, you know, yeah, I'll sign up for a PR... Proportional Electoral College. That's better than the one we have now.
0: <laughs> if, Doesn't if it's not one state do it like
1: Nebraska or Maine? Nebraska and Maine both have like congressional districts that get to vote that way. It's oh, sort it of the same thing, but like a national system by which each like congressional district puts up, uh, you know, an elector like has an elector assigned. Yeah, that would be like a way bigger thing. But I think it could really generally be modeled off like the Maine and and Nebraska system. Man, like I said,
0: anything anything but right. the one we have now <laughs> no I think I think states have to do it for like states have to change the way that they would uh uh slate electors by the vote, changing to the proportional system, and it would have to change state by state, and then once you got like say enough states doing it, then perhaps they'd try to do it at the federal level, yeah, um I think that's how i would I would foresee it actually happening playing out,
1: yeah, or you know constitutional amendments was the other one that was a big one, like have enough state conventions happen and then do it, but Man, making amendments in this country is super hard too. Like you have to get quite a few people on board. Usually, have to be a overwhelming thing. But some of those pushes, you know, like reforming the electoral college, I think could garner potentially and maybe a different political environment, like general enough bipartisan support to like get across, like at least Congress or some become law. You know,
2: I I think it's not going to become bipartisan or lean to yeah. bipartisanship. Until you see, because for instance, if it was proportional voting for the electoral college, Donald Trump wouldn't be the president of the United yeah, he'd States. Lost, yeah, he lost, him. Right. But so whenever you see a, a, a format where I would have still been president even with the system, like with a change system, then you'll start to see some progression in terms of changing the
1: electoral college. Yeah, I can agree with but you. But
2: if like the current system is helping you out, why?
1: why well, yeah. change it? That's the that's a good Republican approach in general. I mean if you got like state districts that just keep electing Republican legislatures, you're gonna probably wanna like make sure that they
0: stay keep electing Republican legislatures, you know. Yeah. Or garnering enough interest in just like the common people. Like if you had a string of the say if the next like three or four elections were just like you had the Electoral College voted or was saying that this candidate's president and then the popular vote said that this can- person's candidate not saying the same thing for a couple elections in a row. People I think, will be like, "They're I think tired they, of yeah, that." This is going to get so much attention. <laughs> the media is going to be covering this. This is going to make it like a, from the ground up type movement. Yeah. Um,
2: the only problem with that is that I, what I foresee is if that does happen, then the conversation is going to go to we should only have a popular vote, and I think uh, having a popular vote might even be worse than the current system that we have. Oh yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Because I, if if you have the popular vote. You already have your big cities, your New York, your L.A., your Chicago, your Houston, that tend to vote in a specific manner. And if you look at popular voting in terms of presidential elections, we can look at France and how Paris is a massive city. Mm-hmm. And the metropo- metropolitan area of Paris is, ma- makes it even larger, right? The, the greater Paris area. Uh, so that's where most of the votes are. And they tend to vote a specific way. Yeah. Whereas the rural parts and even small, maybe even slightly smaller cities vote in a different direction, and you start seeing these yellow yellow vest protests and riots that arise in, in France. And yeah, I feel like it, it would just lead to more instability.
1: I can I can definitely see the potential for like a popular vote, uh, giving at least a lot of. Um like political energy to like rural areas and stuff that would like you say like traditionally vote in a certain way uh primarily because you know it'll be like it it it, it would be a a good time for them to call voter suppression or or whatnot like we're not being fairly represented because all these were you know all of these uh like be it the electoral college or even like the way that the numbers are counted were like generally brokered agreements you know like made in the constitutional era between small state delegates or like delegates from small states and delegates from large states it's interesting to see how those problems persist even to now like like small state interests versus large state interests are having to be settled through like electoral compromises uh because i definitely could see the problem arising where it's like rural areas may feel unrepresented or whatnot. But I do believe in some kind of proportional representation assigned to it, or at least some, the uh, federal outlaw of faithless electors or something like that, or you know, there has to be some kind of division because it is super skewed how the electors are slated. At least get state legislatures way less power in shaping their electoral boards because that allows them to, like we're seeing now, like I was discussing, like that, I think that's going to be a potential f- huge political problem that, if used now, might even be used further in the future. It would kind of give precedent to it, you know. It would be like this is an, uh, an attractive way to contest for power in these elections, you
0: know. Yeah. Yep. No, I agree. It would give a precedent to it. Um, before we uh, end it, do you want to plug, okay. plug plug some of the things that, that you are very excited to share with us today? Yeah. Some of the organizations, And maybe even some,
2: some ways, because the majority of our listeners are here from Texas, yeah. not New England, not Harvard. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Uh, so maybe even some ways that where people here could help out
1: your organizations. Up, yeah. Up so, um, yeah, well, for one, thank you guys for having me. It was a wonderful uh, conversation about anything from Harvard to, uh, to uh, the chaos that is our modern politics. But um, I definitely, like, plug my uh, self on HPR stuff. Uh, I make articles. I'm a columnist. Definitely check it out. Uh, a good way to get involved is to look for m- local mutual assistance organizations. Like I was saying at the beginning of this call, I really do believe in the power of community-based organizing. Uh, searching out for, like, national campaigns and... Doing national work is always important, and it's a good way that we can build solidarity too. As you know, uh, that causes can build solidarity, but really look for ways to get involved, even at levels that don't seem political. Organize at a local goodwill, like do a food drive, help clean up trash. Go all the way from doing that to like going to local, like for instance, like go to a local DSA organizing meeting, go to a local U Dems meeting, or something go there and those people always have tasks. These people are constantly working. They need people to do anything from canvas to phone bank to schedule meetings and to create events. Uh, Getting involved is super easy at a time like this, especially around an election, especially when so many, like we've raised, are uh, so many valid political concerns. There's lots of groups working towards those things. So I definitely say, like, look within and look towards your community. Like, communities need help. Communities need assistance. Volunteer at homeless shelters. Uh, volunteer at mutual assistance organizations and nonprofits. That's the sort of work that will really tangibly help your community and that you will see a tangible, real difference from. Uh, but, yeah, I guess that's really all I'd say. Uh, I have like Twitter and stuff. You can follow me uh, there at Jordan H. Barton. And, like, saying Jordan H. Barton's pretty much everything on my socials. Uh, Check me out on HPR and uh, check out this podcast a
0: lot. It's pretty good. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Thank thank you so much, Jordan, for coming on. Of course. Um, Thank you. Well, this has been another episode of This is Absurd.